just a couple of short readings. First one is Matthew 28 uh, from verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The second reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, which will also come up. And we're just looking at two verses, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Uh, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. All right, good afternoon, and um, welcome if you're tuning in from home. Thanks for taking the time to do that. Um, For those of you who are here and gathered with us, thanks for taking the time to actually gather to put on face masks and all of that. It's a, it's a massive deal these days getting to church, isn't it? So I really appreciate it. But also, if you're not feeling safe to yet gather with the people, thank you for tuning in online. Really good on you to everyone. Everyone needs a bit of encouragement in this season, don't we? But um, the, uh, the series that we're heading through at the moment is called Deep. And if you hadn't worked it out by now, it's actually a series on doctrine. But doctrine makes people you know, feel like it's a bit of a yawn. So we called it something else. So surprise, surprise, that's where we're heading into. But we are, we are looking really at the key teachings of Scripture about who God is, the most profound questions that you can ask about God. Who is God? What is God like? How does He save? And so on. And so I'm really looking forward to diving deeper into this as the series goes on. But it's worth considering why it is that as a follower of Jesus, you'd want to know what you believe. Because the truth is we are charged to pass on this message undiluted to the next generation. The the reason that we are able to gather here in a land so far away from where the gospel was first preached is because women and men knew the gospel, believed the gospel, guarded the gospel and passed it on to the next generation. And Christians all over the world, even today, are willing to suffer and die to pass on this message and will not compromise it because they believe it is the life-saving message of God. And so we want to be a church that knows what we believe and rejoices in it. And now on that, as we think about passing the gospel on to the next generation, kids' ministry is about to switch up at 11 a.m. soon because we'll need a few more leaders and, uh, and a few different rooms in order to spread out the kids. We've got about 30 to 40 kids now, and some of them are getting a bit older, so we want to teach them the gospel as well as we can to each age group. And so if you're listening online and you're a member or here, and that's a ministry that you would actually like to help out with, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd love to be a part of passing on the gospel to the next generation, these kids, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got time, you could volunteer There is no greater task you could put yourself to. We'd love to hear from you in that. So uh, if that's you, if you feel like God's moving you towards that, please let me know either today or sometime this week, and I'll pass your details on to Anne, who's looking after the ministry. But today we are looking at, at the question, as Jacob said, of what is God like? 
And we are looking at essentially what Christians have called the doctrine of the Trinity. The fact that God is one and three. And I want to put to you that this is, this is something that is right at the center of who God is and what He is like. And it matters because while it's very hard to wrap our mind around, you really wouldn't want a God that you could fully wrap your mind around. Let me, let me explain it to you in this way. I'm going to read you a story, a story, not a story, a story, and it's a very short story, so bear with me, but it is an odd story. And so I'm going to read it, it's less, than, it's less than 200 words, so even if it's bad, you don't have long to sit it out, but I think as it goes through, you'll get that it's, it's a bit of a parable and there's a moral message to it. So this is how it goes, it says, once upon a time, there were two little boys who lived chiefly in the front garden because their villa was a model one. The front garden was about the same size as a dinner table, and it consisted of four strips of gravel and a square of turf with some mysterious pieces of cork standing up in the middle and one flower bed and a row of red daisies. One morning, while they're at play in these romantic grounds, a passing individual, probably the milkman, leaned over the railing and engaged them in philosophical conversation, as milkmen are wont to do. And in this, the boys, whom we'll call Paul and Peter, were at least sharply interested in his remarks. For the milkman, who was, I need say, a fairy, did his duty in that state of life by offering them, in the regulation manner, anything they chose to ask for. And Paul closed the offer with business-like abruptness, explaining that he had long wished to be a giant, that he might stride across the continents and oceans and visit Niagara or the Himalayas in an afternoon dinner dinner stroll. The milkman, producing a wand from his pocket, waved it in a hurried manner, and in an instant, the model villa with its front garden was like a tiny doll's house at Paul's colossal feet. He went striding away with his head above the clouds to visit Niagara and the Himalayas. But when he came to the Himalayas, he found they were quite small and silly-looking like the little cork rockery in the garden. And when he found Niagara, it was no bigger than the tap turned on in the bathroom. He wandered round the world for several minutes, trying to find something really large and finding everything small, till in sheer boredom, he lay down on four or five prairies and fell asleep. Unfortunately, his head was just out the side of a hut of an intellectual backwoodsman who came out of it just at that moment with an axe in one hand and a book of neo-Catholic philosophy in the other. Just track with me for a bit on this, all right? We're going somewhere. He looked at the giant, and he looked at the book, and he looked at the giant again. And he read the book, and it said, It can be maintained that the evil of pride consists in being out of proportion to the universe. So the backwoodsman put down his book, took up his axe, and worked eight hours a day for a week, and cut off the giant's head. And that was the end of him. Such is the severe story of Paul. But Peter, oddly enough, made exactly the opposite request. He said he had long wished to be a pygmy about half an inch high. And of course, he immediately became one. When the transformation was over, he found himself in the midst of an immense plain, covered with a tall green jungle, above which, at intervals, rose strange trees with a head like the sun in symbolic pictures, with gigantic rays of silver and a huge heart of gold. Toward the middle of this prairie stood a mountain of such romantic and impossible shape, yet of such stony height and dominance, that it looked like some incident from the end of the world. And far away on the faint horizon, he could see the line of another forest, taller and yet more mystical, 
of a terrible crimson color, like a forest on fire forever. He set out on his adventures across that colored plain, and he has not come to the end of it yet. It's in a book written by G.K. Chesterton called Tremendous Trifles. And the moral of the story is that joy is not found in being the biggest thing in the universe, as a human anyway, but in being very small, in being shrunk down. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? We kind of think that if we could just dominate the world and look down on everything and tame it all, that we would find ourselves happy, and yet often we find ourselves bored. That is the way of human nature, isn't it? We take something, we tame it, and we grow bored of it. We find wild animals, we put them in a zoo, and we grow bored of them. And it's the same with God. Often, we want a tame, domestic, simple understanding of God, one that we could contain and hold on to. But God refuses to be tamed like this. And unless we let Him speak for Himself about who He is and what He is like, we will forever be like that first one in the garden, living with small concepts and ones that ultimately are not worth living for or worshipping. But if we see God as He really is, if we will open up Scripture and let it speak clearly, we will see that there is a God who is beyond our understanding, who will not submit to human understanding, and is God by that very nature. And so I'm going to pray that God would open our hearts and minds that as we open His Word today, we would see Him as He really is, three in one, Father, Spirit, and Son. Let's pray. Father, we just want to repent now of having too small a vision of you, of wanting to contain you and to think of you in ways that are unbefitting of an infinite God. Father, we pray that as we open your word, that we would see you clearly, the wonder of you, that you are beyond our understanding and yet have revealed yourself through your word and your son. Father, we pray your spirit will give us eyes to see what we cannot see in human strength, your glory and your wonder and your greatness. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Christianity and Judaism, or Judeo-Christianity, really had one defining feature out of the other major world religions. The, the Jews who, who grew up in Israel were forbidden from making images of God. In fact, if you go back through the Old Testament, particularly if you read the Psalms, what is it that God's people are constantly mocked for? What do the other nations mock them with? They will say to them, Israel, where is your God? We have our God here, a statue in in glorious sort of raiment. Where is your God? They were mocked for having an invisible God. And Christians likewise have followed through on this. We have no statues in this church. Occasionally there might be a monument to Jesus or or something like that, but no one knows what he looked like, although we know he was human, so we may have some sense of it. But even, even Christian churches today will not put something up that is meant to represent God. And the reason for it is because God forbid it. And why? We're going to see from the reading that Jacob read out just before from Exodus 3 why it is that God's people have been forbidden from making images or statues of him. In this story... A guy called Moses is about to meet God. And that's a terrifying moment. God has given him a mission saying, you're going to go to the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him to let an entire people group go. You're going to tell him to decimate his own economy, and you're going to tell him to do it because I said so. 
And Moses obviously is a little bit nervous about this. So he's saying to God, okay, if I go and tell these people that I'm on this mission from God, they're going to think I'm crazy. Look, who, who should I say has sent me to you? And that's where we pick up this story in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, it says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Do you catch how big this is? Moses is saying to God, God, what's your name? Now, I don't think anyone in this room, I'm imagining, I might be wrong, but I don't think anyone in this room chose their own name. You might like your name, you might not like your name, you might have not liked it in high school, but you've become okay with it now. I don't know how you feel about your name, but one reminder that you have every time you have to write it down is that you did not create yourself. Somebody else is responsible for your existence, and they named you. When Moses asked God, who named you, what's he going to say? I think it's a profound answer. God is saying to him, my name is, I am who I am. And he's not just being cheeky or difficult, like the kid in class who's just getting around the question. He's making a statement about what he is like. God is saying, I am who I am. Nobody made me. Nobody named me. I am the great I am, the unmoved mover, the uncreated creator. I am the only God. And in Hebrew, it's Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh, which is I am who I am or I will be who I will be. And it's where we get the word Yahweh, if you've ever heard that referred to God. The letters YHWH come from that, those letters Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh. And from then on, the unique name for God by his people was Yahweh. And this name Yahweh was considered so holy that if you were a Jewish person, you would not say it. So there was a thing that they used to say, which was the Shema, which would have been the equivalent of kind of the Australian national anthem. Everyone, every Israelite knew it. And so if you got, you know, um, one of the kids at Sunday school in the synagogue to get up and you said, you're going to say the Shema, what they would do is they'd have to read it out and they would say, the, the, the Shema was to say, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is one. But because they couldn't say Yahweh, they would say Adonai, meaning Lord. And so that became the name that God was known by, Lord. So when you go back through the Old Testament and you see in your Bible, in all caps, L-O-R-D, it's not because the person who wrote it is one of those just, you know, technologically incompetent or whatever, or they're one of those people on Facebook who writes in all caps in angry rants all the time. The reason it will be in all caps is to say, this is Yahweh, the unique name for God. That's where it is. And so Lord was the name for God. Yahweh was the one who had saved them. The Lord is one. There is one God and no other. Everyone and everything was created by him, and his name was a reminder that he was the uncreated creator, that there was no one like him, and that they were to worship Yahweh alone and not the gods of the nations around them who were just idols made by humans. No, this is the one true God, the Lord. But then we get something weird. I don't know if you noticed it in that reading from Matthew 28. You see what it says in Matthew 28, 19? Jesus says, go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, the one name, the only name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What is that name? Yahweh, Lord. And we see this reverberated through the New Testament. In James 3.9, we see that the Father is Lord. It says, with our mouths, we bless our Lord and Father. We see that the Son is the Lord. Romans 1.7 says, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ our Lord, is repeated over 70 times in the New Testament. It is abundantly clear that Jesus is claiming the name of God. The Spirit is the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And if this isn't convincing enough, the, the Bible speaks of all three as God explicitly. Jesus, sorry, the Father is God. In John 6.27 it says, On Him God the Father has set His seal. Jesus is God. In Titus 2.13 it says, Our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to bundle them all up for you. In, the, in Acts 5, a man called Ananias lies to the apostles and Peter confronts him and says to him, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the most logical thing you might be saying is, well, okay, well, clearly Christianity then is, is polytheistic. There are three gods. All three of them are referred to as God. But the Bible is clear from start to finish that God is one. Isaiah 46, 9, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Isaiah 40, uh, 48, uh, sorry, 47, 8 and 10, I am and there is no one besides me. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and then repeated in Mark 12, Old and New Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Romans 12, God is one. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God. James 2.19, you believe that God is one and shudder. It's clear from beginning to end, there is one God. And yet the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all referred to as God. Not only that, but the New Testament writers explain that really every action that God does is at the same time indivisibly one and yet irreducibly three. In 1 Peter, 2, 1 Peter 1, 2 to 3, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ through the sprinkling of His blood. In saving a person, God is one and three. In Romans 8, it says, For the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. At Jesus' baptism, all three are present. Jesus is coming up out of the water when we read this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. So you imagine Jesus coming up from the water. And it says, And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him. So the Spirit is descending on Jesus as he's rising. And then we hear this. A voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Like the father is presiding over the whole situation and declaring that he is pleased with this. Not only that, but at the end of the book of Jude, the shortest book in the Bible, if you're looking for a quick read, in Jude 20 to 21, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the book of 2 Corinthians finishes, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The technical term for this is called a Trinitarian formulation. It's when the, the authors of the New Testament talk about all three in the one sentence because they're trying to communicate to you that God is three and one. And the easiest way to summarize this all is to say that there is one God, God is three persons, and each person, oh God, that, was, that was the second point, and each person is fully God. Three points to keep it in threes. God is one, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. That is very difficult to get your head around, isn't it? That's not a concept that comes up to us, that one plus one plus one would equal three. Unless you're into infinite set theory, which I know, I know a lot of you are, right? And because of that, sometimes we've come up with some silly illustrations to try and make it understandable, but in the end, they fall short. And sorry to ruin your youth group days if these kind of ones floated around, but I remembered hearing when I was, you may have grown up in a church, and you may have heard something like this. Well, the way to understand the Trinity is like an egg. An egg has a yolk, a white, and a shell. And so together, you have an egg. It's kind of three and one. And you're like, oh, maybe if you squint a bit and look to this. I mean, really, there's just a correlation of the numbers three and one. But it's not the same, is it? I mean, think about it. The claim of the Bible is that the Holy Spirit is God, that Jesus is God. That the Father is God. So if you've met Jesus, you have met God. If you have a yolk, you do not have an egg. If you have a shell, you do not have an egg. They're only an egg when they're combined together. It would be like, it's basically saying that God is like, if you've seen the Power if you're into Power Rangers as a kid, the God is, is like Power Rangers. Yeah, you might have the blue, the pink, the, I can't remember what the whole color chart was, the Dulux color chart that corresponds to whatever they are. But, um, but basically, you, you get five of them together, and when they combined at the end of the episode, they would form Megazord, this giant robot. And when they combined together, they finally had this, this giant robot thing to, to battle their enemies. Using the egg illustration is kind of like saying, well, Jesus is kind of a third of God, and so is the Spirit, and so is the Father. And when you combine them all, you get God. That is not the teaching of Scripture. That is not what the Bible says. There is one God, God is three persons, and each, each person is fully God. But there's another illustration that sounds more sophisticated. The idea that like God is like water, or more specifically, H2O is a compound, because it comes in three states, solid, liquid, and gas. So God is like that. That's one, that's three. He's Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. But what's the problem with that? Water isn't, H2O isn't really three things. It's just one compound in three different forms. And the main problem with that is, if that's who God is, then God is an actor. So he's on earth as Jesus. Then he's, surprise, I'm the Father. And, I'm, and now I'm the Holy Spirit. Oh, which one am I going to be next? And the real problem with that is, you can't know that you really know who God is. Because there might be a fourth character, or a fifth, or a sixth that he plays, or a tenth. And then you're like, which one is he? Or is he none of them? Is he another one? The illustration falls down because that is not who God reveals himself to be. He reveals himself to be something that we struggle to understand. Three and yet one. And I think this is perfect if God really is to truly be God. 
The reason that an egg is not like God or a power ranger or water or anything in creation, the reason God forbid anyone to make an image of him is because there is none like God. That's what makes him God. That's why in Isaiah 56 he says, I am God, there is no other. There's no one like me. There's no one to compare me to. That's why he says not to make graven images. That's why metaphors and illustrations fall down because we're trying to get our head around something that ultimately we will never exhaustively know. But the other profound thing about this is that we saw last week that God is God-centered. The question we ask is, what does God love most? What does God enjoy most? What is God most passionate about? And the answer was God. And of course, the logical question from that is, well, isn't that arrogant? How can he command us to be, to be self-sacrificial when he is so self-centered? But here is the unique character of God. God is the only being in all existence that can simultaneously be self-centered and others-centered at the same time. The Father loves not Himself but the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves not Himself but the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son. This is how God can be entirely for God and yet at the same time others-centered. This is why in 1 John 4 it says, God is love. Meaning that before he created anyone else, he was a community of love. He wasn't this being who was longing to love something, and then once he made us, he actually had something he could love. God was already a community of love. And he created us so that we might experience that same love and joy that he has had from all eternity in and of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I think this meets a profound need. It is the case that for kids, the thing that they want to know most from their parents, and for whatever reason, this isn't how family always works out, but the thing that kids want to know most from their parents is not that their parents love them, but that they love one another. That's what kids want to know most of all. Because the idea is that there's this thing going on between mum and dad, this love that they have that was going on before the kids, that, that, that they then kind of welcome the kids into. That that's what a family is to be. That's what God is. God had everything he needed in and of himself. He didn't create us because he was needy or desperate. He didn't make us to fulfill some kind of need in his life. He did it out of love to say, this love that I have, I'm going to share with humanity. It explains why it is that we long for community, why we were built not to be alone. At the center of the universe is a God who is a community of love and he invites us to imitate him in this and to be a part of it. But the second thing is that this is a God who is worthy of praise. A God who could be entirely tamed by the intellect is not a God worthy of praising. I think most people, and I think it's because we were made by God, are looking for and longing for an object of, worthy of infinite praise. And this is why oftentimes people in their first relationship just go hell for leather, right? They, they, they have their first kind of grand love experience and they just disappear into that relationship. And inevitably, it kind of comes unstuck because ultimately another human is not significant or complicated enough to be an object of infinite praise. Eventually you find out they're just as flawed as you or eventually, 
we, we just kind of get used to one another. But we are longing for something or someone, a being, who is so infinite and complex and so beyond that you could study them and, and, and contemplate them forever and never get to the bottom of it. And this is who God is. And I believe rather than being a doctrine that Christians should sort of tuck away on the back shelf, I think it should be front and center as evidence as to why it is that the Bible is divinely inspired. Most of the conceptions of God throughout history have just been like petty humans with a lot of power. Who would have come up with the idea that a God is three and one? I think it strikes a perfect balance of a God who is understandable, because if he's such a complicated concept that we can't understand, he's entirely irrelevant. And at the same time, not able to be fully tamed by our mind. He is beyond. He is transcendent. And he's worthy of praise. And so here's my challenge for you this week. And we're going to hit it up in, in small groups and missional communities this week. I want you to take a moment this week to sit with a song that contemplates the glory of the Holy Trinity. And to sing it, and if you're too embarrassed to sing around other people, just there's plenty of space in ISO to do it. Just clear everything out and just sit and listen to the words and contemplate the God who is, who is three in one. And to get us into that space now, I actually, I actually requested that, um, that the musos would learn a song and a particular arrangement for this week. It's a hymn that if, you, if you've been in church or around churches for a while, you may know it. Maybe even if you weren't, you may have heard it before. A hymn called Holy, Holy, Holy. And I think it's the second verse contemplates the Holy Trinity, the Godhead three in one. And so what we're going to do now is they're going to come up. I'm going to pray for us. And then after that, I want you to take, whether you're listening in at home or you're here in the building, I want you to take a moment and just let the, the music wash over you and to contemplate this God who is three in one, Father, Spirit, and Son, and praise Him for who He is and what He is like. I'm going to pray that we'd be able to do that now. Father, we thank You that we can know You. And though we can know You truly, we will never know You exhaustively. And we praise You for that. That You are a God of wonder. That You are a God who will not submit to our mere understanding. That You are a God who is far and beyond, and yet You have revealed Yourself You've spoken to us through your word and given us your Holy Spirit that we might understand. And Father, I just pray that we would be overawed by who you are and the fact that you would love us. The fact that you are the God of love who poured out your love upon us. You sent Jesus to die for us and your spirit to live within us and to guide us in all that we might know you, Father. Father, we pray these things not for our glory, but for your glory alone. Amen.